We are going to be in Isaiah chapter 1 today. We're beginning a uh, series through the book of Isaiah. And um, I know that's scary for some of you to hear me say that we're going to be going through a series of 66 chapters. But um, I believe I have got this thing outlined in such a way that I believe we can get through it in about 20 to 25 messages. And so um, we are going to be in it for a little while, but I think that you're going to get a lot out of it. And so um, I think that you're going to... um, see some things maybe that you've never saw before, learn some things that you've never known. And um, I think it would be very beneficial to you if you'll just hang with me as we, as we go through it. But um, we um, just came out of the Psalms, and um, I had such a wonderful time in the Psalms that um, I didn't really want to leave them, just to be honest with you, but I also don't like for something to grow stale. And so... Um, One day I'm going to go back to the Psalms, but I thought it would be healthy for a time to step away from them. We were in them from October all the way until just a a few weeks ago. And so we were in them for a long time. And um, and Isaiah, if if I've got my math correctly, we'll probably be in Isaiah until about October. But the reason I wanted to move from from the Psalms to Isaiah is because the, the literature is very similar. Much of Isaiah is written in uh, Hebrew poetic form. And so um, as we study it, a lot of the ways that we study it are going to be very similar, and we're going to be able to outline things in a very similar manner and and draw out of them by um, understanding how Hebrew poetry is written. And so I believe it's a good transition to go from the Psalms to Isaiah. And as I said before, I think you're going to get a lot out of it. It is... um, filled with all types of of imagery in here. And so, uh, because it is poetic language, Isaiah is going to use a lot of terms in here that um, paint pictures for you. And so, he's going to use a lot of uh, metaphors, and he's going to tell you that it's like this, or he's going to use this example. And so, there are so many examples and pictures that you're going to to be able to to see in this. And then... um, there's also lots of instruction in Isaiah. And you'll see that at the end of our um, service in the closing that we'll use some Scripture to show you that the things that Isaiah wrote were for our instruction as Christians today, not just for the people that he was speaking to. Now, I wanted to uh, let you know that Isaiah is one of the books in the Old Testament that is quoted more than... 60 times in the New Testament. It is quoted 21 times in the Gospels, 25 times by the Apostle Paul, 6 times by Peter. It's quoted 5 times in the book of Acts, 4 times in Revelation, 1 time in Hebrews. Y'all pray for me. I'm trying my best to get through this. And I'm just getting started. And it's quoted 1 time in the book of Hebrews. Jesus quoted both halves of Isaiah. When I say halves, I'm talking about they believed that Isaiah was split into two halves. Uh, Chapters 1 through 39 would have been Isaiah 1, if you will. And then Isaiah 2, the second part of it, would be chapters 40 through 66. And so Jesus quoted from both the first half of Isaiah and the second half of Isaiah, and He attributed it to Isaiah. There have been some question about what the authorship of this was, thank you, and um, or who the author of this was, and was it really Isaiah? And here's where I would take you to to understand that we can trust that this is Isaiah's words 
that were written down. Maybe not by Isaiah, but they are Isaiah's words. And so look with me at John chapter 12, verse 38 through 41. He says here, and this is Jesus, so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their ears and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Now think about what Jesus is saying right here. First off, who does Jesus say are the words in the book of Isaiah? They're Isaiah's words, right? And then he also says that the reason why he said these things is because Isaiah saw the glory of Jesus Christ and he spoke of Him. Once again, what we're trying to do in Isaiah, we're trying to get the instruction that the Lord would have for us. And then we are trying to... um, (laughs) Thank you. Everybody's bringing me something. Come on. What else you got? Somebody give me something a little stronger. What am I talking about? All right. So we want to look in this and we want to hear the the instruction that God has for us in Isaiah. And then we also want to be able to look at this and be able to see where do I see Christ in this text? How can I celebrate Christ as I read this text? And so as we study Isaiah, those are some of the things that you're going to be looking for. And that's how you're going to get the most out of it. Um, Isaiah was a prophet at the same time as Amos, Hosea, and Micah. And so if you want some more context to understand the book of Isaiah, you're going to get a lot of that by reading those minor prophets. And the only reason we call them minor prophets is because what they said is not as much of it recorded as it is in Isaiah. That's the only difference. They were just as um, needed as far as prophets were concerned and just as major as far as prophets. All right. It has been called the fifth gospel because Christ is so clearly portrayed in it as the Savior of the world. It's been called the Romans of the Old Testament because the problem of sin in the heart of man is dealt with and God's plan to redeem sinners is so clearly portrayed. It is a, it is a book that, um, as far as I'm concerned, as the Old Testament goes, it is the one that stands out among them all. And it is the one that I believe that that we can get so much from and yet we neglect. We don't spend a lot of time in it. We don't spend a lot of time studying from it. Another thing I want to mention to you this morning, as we come to the opening verse, you're going to notice in verse 1 that it says, This is the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. So, this is a collection of visions that Isaiah saw. All right, God gave him visions for Judah and Jerusalem. Now, another thing you need to understand is that during this time, the kingdom of Israel is split into two sections. Basically, civil war has taken place, and there is a north and there is a south. There were 12 total tribes of Israel, right? The 12 tribes of Israel. Ten of them rebelled after Solomon against the house of David. 
They, they were not going to stay under the kingship of, of the house of David, which was where the seed of Christ was going to come from, correct? They rebelled against it. And so they are known as the kingdom of Israel. Or sometimes they are called Ephraim in this. So whenever you're reading through here and you read of Israel or Ephraim, you're reading of the ten tribes that rebelled against the house of David. Everybody tracking with me? This is important, alright? The southern kingdom are the tribes of Judah and Benjamin. And they stay true to the house of David and they hold position in the city of Jerusalem, in the holy city. And so Isaiah sees that as far as Israel goes, the ten tribes that have rebelled against the house of David, he's watched them, he's heard what God has to say about them. They have fallen so far into sin and so far into idolatry and they have forsaken the Lord so far that there's no hope left for them as far as an earthly kingdom. All right, As far as an earthly kingdom, the kingdom of Israel is fixing to be overtaken and destroyed. But the kingdom of Judah, which is what the southern kingdoms are known as. Remember, the northern are known as Israel or Ephraim. Everybody tracking with me. The southern is known as the kingdom of Judah. That's the reason why when you read Isaiah in the first verse, he says, this is the vision that he saw concerning Judah being the tribes of Judah and Benjamin and Jerusalem being the city where they, where they called home. Alright? And so primarily what Isaiah is doing is he's looking to what the Lord has to say about Israel and what God's doing because of how far Israel has gone And then he's coming back to Judah and he's warning them, saying, listen, you've not gone too far yet. There is still hope for you. Let me show you an example of the two names. Look at Isaiah chapter 7, beginning in verse 2. When the house of David, and this would be the ones that stayed true to the house of David, right? So we're talking about Judah and Jerusalem. Sometimes they're called the house of David. Sometimes they're called Judah. Sometimes it's called Jerusalem. But it all encompasses this group of people, the southern tribes, all right? The ones that still have hope. When the house of David was told, Syria, or the Assyrians, Syria is in league with Ephraim. And who did I tell you Ephraim was? The northern tribes, right? So Syria, who is an ungodly nation, has joined together with your northern brothers. They're in league together. The heart of Ahaz, which is the king of, of, uh, the Ju- of Judah, the southern tribes, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. Because what they're seeing happen is Assyria is coming in and it is getting closer and closer. They're conquering the world. And now they're on top of Jerusalem. The only reason Ephraim or Israel has joined up with them is because they're scared for their lives. And if they don't yoke up with them, they're afraid they're going to be overtaken. But what they don't understand is even if they yoke up with them, they're still going to be overtaken. But now they have joined together with them to come down and destroy this southern tribe. Now go with me to uh, verse 5. Because Syria 
with Ephraim, the northern tribes, and the son of Remaliah, who was the king of Ephraim, or the king of Israel. Remember, there's two tribes, so that means there's two different kings, right? Because the tribes to the north don't want the king of David. So they raise up their own king. That's his guy, the son of Remaliah. He has devised evil against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah, the southern tribes, and terrify it, and let us conquer it for ourselves, and set up the son of Tabel as king in the midst of it. So they want to remove the king of David. You see what I'm saying? And they want to set their own king up in this place. They want to continue this civil war, and they want to wipe the house of David out. Thus says the Lord God, It shall not stand, and it shall not come to pass. It ain't going to happen, that's simple. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin, and within 65 years, Ephraim will be what? There's no hope for Ephraim. There's no hope for the kingdom of Israel. Assyria is going to come in in 65 years from the time that Isaiah gets this prophecy, and he's going to wipe them out. They're going to try to come down and wipe out Judah. But guess what? God said, it ain't going to happen. So there's some context for you. As we study through Isaiah, when we read of the house of David or we read of Judah, um, whenever we see those kind of things, they're talking about the southern nation in whom there is still hope for. And Isaiah is prophesying specifically to them. Now, when you go to Amos and Hosea, when you go to Micah, their first verses also tell you who they're prophesying to. I can't remember who is to who, but a couple of them are prophesying to Israel, the northern kingdoms. And so, because one prophet is speaking to this group of people who there is no hope for, and who he's trying to warn them, you better not do this. You're going to make it worse on you than it already is going to be. That's what you read when you go to those prophets. But when you come to this prophet, and I believe Micah, don't quote me on that, just look at the first verse of each one of them and you'll see who it's to. But I think it's Micah. He's also ministering to Judah and to these people. And so when you read those, it's important that you keep that context in mind. Does that make sense? So as we go through Isaiah, we're talking to the group of God's children. They are God's chosen people, right? We're not talking to outsiders. We're not talking to the the sinful nation of Syria that does not know God at all. We're talking to God's children. Are y'all tracking with me? When we read this, you need to understand that. He's not talking to the world. He's talking to the church. He's not talking to your unbelieving friends and family. He's talking to the believers. He's talking to you. So as we read this, it's important that you understand that as we go through this. So now we go to our outline. And if you got, um, uh, we printed off some outlines. If you didn't get one, they're laying around here somewhere. But just in case, I'm going to give you the outline as we go through it. The first part of the outline starts in verses 2 through 4. Verses 2 through 4. And I call this part of the outline, the case. What we have in this poetic literature here 
is a picture, an image of a courtroom scene. God is bringing a charge against His people. God has has brought His people to court and He is going to call witnesses to listen to His charge to give account to the truthfulness of the charge against His people. And so picture a courtroom scene in your head. Anybody in here have been to court? Some of y'all don't want to raise your hand, do you? Anybody in here ever been multiple times? That's more like it. All right. So verses 2 through 4 is the case. And what we have here is God's broken heart. God is fixing to bring a charge against His children. You have broken my heart. All right? And so that's what you want to see as we read this. Notice in verse 2, what we have is God calls His first witnesses. In verse 2, He says, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. So the first thing that happens is God summons all of His children to the courtroom. And then He summons His first witnesses. He says, heavens and all the earth. Now this could literally be the heavens, the body of heavens, and the land on the earth, the trees, or it could be all the rest of creation that live in the heavens and on the earth, the angels, the the birds, the fish, the, uh, the trees, the plants. We don't know for certain what this is, but this is typical poetic language. Uh, Moses used it in Deuteronomy when he called as witnesses heaven and earth against the people of God that He offered before them both life and death. Um, We see it in the Psalms. Many times this happens. The point is this. God understands that in some way, both heaven and all that is in it, and earth and all that is in it, is going to be able to give an account for your choices for or against Him. One way or the other, You won't have to worry about your mom or your dad or your brother or your sister sitting in the witness seat to give an account against you. There is going to be God's witnesses, the heavens and the earth, and they have watched and seen everything that you have done. And God calls them to the stand now. He calls them up, basically I would say almost as a jury, to listen to His case that He's about to present to listen to the charge that he's about to give. And this is what Isaiah is doing. He's literally trying to paint a picture in your head as he writes that God is bringing a charge against His children. And here is the charge that we have as he calls his first witnesses. In verse 2, Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. Now there is nothing sadder in this world that I've ever seen in the ministry than a parent who raised a child up and they've watched that child as little bitty. They've nurtured it. They have gave it everything it needs. They have taught it to walk. They have have stood there with open arms as that child walked to them. And that was the motivation for them to walk, was their love for their parent. They have, they have watched them get on the school bus for the first days to go to school. They have uh, they've watched them graduate 
kindergarten. They've watched them go up to first grade and second grade and they have they they felt their loving, tender care as they would come up and say, Mommy, I, I love you, or Daddy, I, I love you. And they have they have felt the the care and the love of this child that they have reared and they have raised. And then one day, that child is old enough to make its own decisions. And it rebels. And that child goes out into the world and that child gets itself involved in things that the parent can't even imagine that they would have ever done anything. Like, that's not the way they raised them. That's not the way they reared them up. This is not what... The, this is not the way that I have taught you. And yet, they find that child out in the world. And I have seen very few things in my life in the ministry that are more sad than those situations. Especially the worst cases of them. And what God is saying here is to His children, I remember you when you were just a baby. I remember you whenever you, you would put your head on my shoulder and you would sleep. I remember you when I fed you and I remember you when, when you walked to me and I remember when I raised you up. I, I, rem I remember the child that was so loving. The child that was so faithful to me as a mom or to me as a dad. Anybody know what I'm talking about? I remember that child. That's what I raised up. But, look at the charge. They have rebelled against me. Look at, uh, at Hosea chapter 11, verse 1 through 4. Hosea chapter 11. And again, Hosea's ministering at the same time, right? And so, same concept applies. Same people. When Israel was a child. Now he's talking to the northern kingdom now, right? But still, they were all his children, right? When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the bells and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim. And again, who's Ephraim? But it was I who taught Ephraim how to walk. Do you hear God's heart here? Do you hear the heart of this parent as he looks at his child and the rebellion that his child is walking in and he remembers everything that he has done for this child and how much he loves this child. I took them up by their arms. Y'all remember that, parents? I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness and with bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws. I bent down to them, and I fed them. Now go with me to verse 7 and 8. My people are bent on turning away from Me, and though they call out to the Most High, He shall not raise them up at all. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you? And these are people that he had basically demolished. How can I do that? My heart, here's the part I want you to pay attention to. Listen to what God says. My heart recalls within me. My compassion grows warm and tender when he looks at his children, even in their rebellion. Is that not what a mother and a father feels? Let me tell you something. When your child goes out into the world and they rebel and they become the worst of the worst, that's still your child, ain't it? 
and you always see that child. The world, does. is that what the world sees? No, the world sees the worst of the worst. But what do you always see? That's my baby. And your heart recoils within you and your compassion grows warm and tender. This is the heart. I want you to feel what God feels as He brings this charge against His children who have rebelled against Him. Now go back with me to Isaiah chapter 1 again. Children have I reared, taught them to walk, fed them, raised them up in my arms, but they have rebelled against me. This is the broken... Do you hear the broken heart of God? Do you see the courtroom scene? Do you see God talking to His kids, pleading with them, saying, this is what you have done to me. You have broken my heart. And they don't even care. Verse 3, next God uses an example. He wants to paint a picture of the animal world to help them see just exactly how bad this is. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib. In other words, the the place where he's fed. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. I want you to think about what he's saying. Anybody remember any expressions about an ox? Somebody is what as an ox? Dumb as an ox. Anybody know any expressions about a, um, a, a donkey? Stubborn. Stubborn as a mule, right? Basically, here's what God does. He takes two animals that these people are very familiar with in the the animal world, and He says to them, even a donkey or even an ox knows who his master is. He submits to him. He surrenders to him. um, He's led by him. When he's disciplined by him, he learns. Even a stubborn donkey knows where he gets fed at and who cares for him. But Israel, my children, they don't know. They don't know their master. They don't know where to come for food. And he says here, if even the dumbest and the most stubborn of all animals know their master and know who cares for them, and knows when it's time to feed, they know where to go. And yet you don't? What does that say about you? What does that say about your offense against Him? Even the dumbest and most stubborn know. And you don't. It's a pretty hard charge, right? Pretty hard offense. I remember um, I heard a story one time about some guys back in, I don't know what year it would have been, years ago, long before cars. But they... A couple guys came in to rob a store. They rode their donkeys in and they, they tied their donkeys up. They went in to rob the store. While they were robbing the store, the police or investigators or whoever it was came up on them and they didn't have time to get their donkeys. They just grabbed what they could and they ran. Well, they didn't know who stole, who robbed the store. And so the investigator got to thinking. They left their donkeys outside. You know what he did? And what did the donkeys do? And that's how they got caught. That's a true story. And so, one of the things that he's trying to paint for here is an image that we all know. These animals know where home is. They know where the one who cares for them resides. 
And all you have to do, even though they are so dumb, and even though they are so stubborn, all you have to do is turn them loose, and they go back home. But not my children. My children don't even know me. The ones who I fed, the ones who I raised up, the ones who I reared. And so this is a very serious accusation. Even the dumbest and most stubborn know where to go for food and shelter, but not God's children. Look at verse 4. Ah, sinful nation. That word ah, some some verses translated as woe. It is a a word that's meant to to, uh, translate emotion here. It's a word that's meant for you to understand that this is God literally looking saying, ah, ah, sinful nation. Now remember, was Israel supposed to be a sinful nation? What kind of nation were they supposed to be? A holy nation. A godly nation. And yet, that's not what we have. We have here this sinful nation. God accuses them. Notice what He says next. He's still bringing charges. You are a people laden with iniquity. That word laden means very numerous, very burdened down. In other words, you are so loaded down with sin that it's like carrying a heavy boulder on top of you. You are laden with iniquity. And not only that, but you are offspring of evildoers. You are children who deal corruptly. You have forsaken the Lord. You have despised the Holy One of Israel. And you are utterly estranged. In other words, you have turned your back on God. You're not talking to the world. talking to the church. To the point that, look at what Isaiah chapter 3, verse 9 says about them. For the look on their faces bears witness against them. They proclaim their sin like Sodom. They do not hide it. Woe to them, for they have brought evil on themselves. What are they doing? They're not, they, they, it's not just that they are laden with sin, they're proud of it. They're proud of it. Now I'm not talking about the people that went to the park yesterday that don't know God. I'm talking about churches here that know God and yet still proudly support this stuff right here. God says, I expect that of the world. That's matter of fact, Romans chapter 1, God says, I have given them over to that, but not my children. I've raised you different, right? I've taught you different. And yet here we have children of God that want to worship God and be all about God, and yet they have rebelled against God, they have forsaken God, they have utterly turned their back on God because they are so proud of their sin. They don't even see it as sin. They deceive themselves and believe. And there are many... How many of you know that we're looking at the church in America today? We were talking yesterday, and I'm going to say it. My wife's going to kill me for this, but I don't care. three of the churches that are closest to our college in this town are three of the ones that support this kind of stuff. (laughs) Three of the churches that support this kind of stuff. I'm not talking about the world. I'm talking about churches, guys. I'm talking about people who God has reared, people who supposedly God has saved, people who supposedly God has opened their eyes. And yet, 
There's nothing wrong with these kinds of sins. God loves everybody the same. Children I have reared up, and they have rebelled against Me. This is a great serious charge. They are laden with iniquity. They have become drunkards. Look with me at Isaiah chapter 5, verse 11. Woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may run after strong drink, who tarry late in the evening as wine inflames them. Now I'm not telling you it's wrong to sit down and, and have an alcoholic beverage. I'm not telling you that. But I am telling you this. Most people, once they begin on that path, eventually it leads to this right here. And they, the people of God have become drunkards. I know of churches right now, I'm not going to call them by name, even though I might as well, but, but these churches are in another county, praise God. At least they're not in this county. But I know of churches that their small group meetings and their fellowships are centered around drinking beer. And again, I'm not saying that it's wrong for you to sit down and have a beer. I'm not. I'm not one of those that I believe the Bible teaches teetotal abstinence. All right? I do believe the Bible teaches it's wise for you to stay away from it, that it's a serpent waiting to bite you. All right? But I am saying this, that when your Bible studies and your small group meetings begin focused around, we're going to get together to have some beer, that's not a good sign. Whenever our small group decides that the place that we're going to meet together is at the local bar, That's not a good sign. Something has happened to the children of God. And then go with me to um, Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20. Notice what they did here. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. They put darkness for light and light for darkness. Is this not what much of God's children are doing today? That's not evil. That's good. Were you raised the same way I was? Do we read the same Bible? Something is missing here. And this is the kind of children that God is dealing with. And then go with me to Isaiah chapter 5, verse 24. Therefore, as the tongue of fire devours the stubble and as dry grass sinks down in the flame, so their root will be as rottenness and their blossom go up like the dust. For they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and have despised the Holy One of Israel. His children have said, we don't want your law, we don't want your ways. His own children, the ones that He chose, the ones that He called out of darkness, out of Egypt, out of slavery, out of sin, and now they are rejecting Him. And this is what I believe we're seeing as far as instruction for the church in America today. I really do believe that. Not all churches, but I do believe that as far as just like this nation, do you believe that every individual in Israel and Judah was doing this? No. But the majority of them were. And because of that, the, the indictment fell on them as a nation. Now, is every church in America doing the things that I've described? No. But because the majority of them are, guess what? The indictment falls on the church that you are a part of. And so God is crying out to us as a church to make sure that we don't follow. This is for instruction. Church, Wells, 
Do not follow the same path that so many churches have followed in the name of progress. Progress. No, you are not progressing, you are regressing. That's what you're doing. And we are warned here through the prophet Isaiah to be careful with this. Ah, sinful nation, you have forsaken the Lord, despised the Holy One of Israel, and you are utterly estranged. Now we go to the plea. In verses verses 5 through 17, we have the plea. And the plea basically in a courtroom setting is what? It's where basically a deal is offered, right? Or if you plead guilty, then this is what I'll do. If you plead innocent, then this is what I do. But you got to plead one way or another, right? And so here God comes in and He spends some time looking at His children saying, listen, I am offering you a plea here. You only have one, one plea that you really can't offer. And what is that? Guilty. That's it. But if you will listen to what I'm saying, I have a plea for you. And so he says to him in verse 5, listen, he says, Judah, will you be struck down? In other words, look around you. The Syrians are coming. They've joined up with Israel. You're being surrounded. Do you not understand there's a reason why you are being surrounded and why you are diminishing and going away? Do you not understand what's happening? Keep going with me. He says, why will you continue to rebel? And he paints another poetic picture here. Now he moves from the animal world and he wants to paint you a picture of a man that has been in a fight. And this man has been beaten so bad that he is sick inwardly, heart, head. From head to toe, he is sick. And he has been beaten so bad that that the inward sickness has come out to where there are wounds that are Festering with infection. Making some of you ready for dinner, ain't I? Festering with infection. And yet, they're not pressed or squeezed out. They are just, this man is standing there with wounds all over, sick from head to toe, festering, and yet, he keeps on coming back to the very thing that is causing all of this to happen. Y'all tracking with me? Follow the picture. Look what he says. Why will you be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick and the whole heart is faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They are not pressed out or bound up. They are not softened with oil. You see the picture? He says, guys, just look around you. He says to us today, church, look around you at the church. The church looks like this man. He is beaten all to pieces. Sick from head to toe. Hardly any soundness left in it. He says the wounds are just festering and ready to explode with infection and yet they're not pressed out. They're not softened with oil. This is a mess that he looks at here. And then he says to them next in verse 7, Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It is desolate as overthrown by foreigners. In other words, just look around you, church. Right now you're being overtaken by Muslims. And your very government 
you're being overtaken. The church is being overtaken by atheists, by Satanists. The church is being overtaken by people who are not of God. Foreigners have moved in and they're devouring this thing. Can you not look and see where this thing is at? And He speaks to the church today and He speaks to His children and He says to them, listen, you are being destroyed all around you and yet you keep rebelling. You keep going against Me. You keep thinking that you can walk that way when I'm over here and not get fed and not be cared for, not have the the grace and the mercy that you need. And so then he says here in verse 8, he paints another picture. And the daughter of Zion, which what we have here, Zion was Jerusalem. Alright? He's saying here, and the daughter of Zion is left. In other words, Jerusalem. Right? Judah. Israel's being taken uh, over by Assyria. All of your lands around you are being destroyed. Your cities are being burned. And the only thing that's left right now is Jerusalem. In other words, when you look at the church, the only thing that's left is just a remnant. Can we be straight? They say that the majority of the United States is Christian. Can I tell you it's not? No, it's not. Guys, you are a minority. I mean a minority. There are a lot of people that say they love God just like they're saying here in Isaiah. They worship Him. You're going to see that here in a few minutes. They go to church. But they are rebelling against Him day after day after day. And some of us, you and I, are included in this picture too, ain't we? We are. And so we're being warned here. He says, And the daughter of Zion, or Jerusalem, is left like a booth. And here's pictures again. Like a booth in a vineyard. In other words, just a lonely farmer, a single booth in an entire vineyard, and that's the only thing that's left is this little old booth. It says, grapes for sale. <laughs> that's all I got for you. Or not only that, he paints another picture. And he says, like a lodge in a cucumber field. Same picture. Or like a besieged city. Jerusalem sits there like a city that's surrounded and it's besieged and there's no hope for it and there's nothing it can do. And he says here, why, in verse 5, why will you be struck down? You're already beaten, church. You're already in such a bad place. Don't be struck down. There is still hope for you. There is still hope for you not to be struck down. But why will you continue to rebel and then go with me to verse 9. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and Gomorrah. Been completely destroyed if it weren't for this little remnant that God's left just here and there in little small pockets of most of them little country churches, just to be honest with you. Did you know today that um, I think they said over 4,500 churches closed. I don't remember what year it was. In the last year or so. In a single year, over 4,500 churches closed. And only 3,000 reopened. So only 3,000 churches were planted while 4,500 closed. Now let me tell you the big problem with that. The 4,500 that closed, probably, clo probably closed, some, not all of them, but because nobody came anymore. Maybe because they were preaching the truth and nobody wanted to hear it. I don't know. But the 3,000 that opened in today's society when a church opens, it usually is not a biblically sound church. 
I had a situation not too long ago that um, um, I didn't know how to deal with a, 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 a little group that I was dealing with that were, were sin sick. They had some issues in their life and they were unrepentant and they didn't want to turn from it. The best thing I knew to do, because I knew they were Christians, or so-called Christians, best thing I knew to do was call their pastor, right? Because that's their spiritual guide. That's their leader, right? And so I call their pastor and I say, you know what? I want to know what's your thoughts on this and this and this. Well, you know, we believe you just have to meet people where they are. Okay. All right. All right. So, so what about the Scriptures that talk about repentance and turning away from sin? Yeah, yeah. And, and again, I'm not, I'm not throwing flavor on this. This is the exact conversation. Yeah, yeah, I, I know what you're talking about, but we don't really teach that here. Exact words. Exact words. Yeah, yeah, I know what you're talking about. I know what you mean, but we don't really teach that here. This is a church that was fairly new at the time when I talked to this. This was church. As a matter of fact, the pastor said to me, well, I'm not really the pastor. The pastor is, okay, do I need to be talking to somebody else? Who else is over this congregation of believers? Well, really... Um, I'm just somebody that kind of administrates, and the pastor is actually over here in another another city. Uh, okay, here's the point that I'm trying to make, and this is a big church, big church. The point that I'm, I'm not, and I'm not saying all big churches are bad. Can I say that too? Um, I know a lot of big churches that are good. I'm just saying that a lot of your churches that are opening up today are not biblically sound churches. And they're not teaching people the truth of the Word of God. They're allowing them to continue to live in the sin that is causing them to forsake God and rebel against God and is making the church sin sick today from head to toe. Anybody following me this morning? Keep reading with me. We go next to verses 18 through 20. He says next, I'm going to invite you to something. Here's the invitation. Verses 18 to 20, if you're outlining it. The invitation. Come now. Let us reason together. <laughs> you, hear the, you hear the voice of a father to his children. Come on, son. Come on. I hear my daddy now. Son, just sit down. Just, just listen to me. Just think about, just think about what I'm saying. Some of y'all can hear your own parents doing the same thing. Just think about what you're doing. Just, just think about where you're at. Just consider all that I'm saying. Come on, let's, let's reason together. And then he says to them, here's what I'm going to do. Though your sins are like scarlet. I love this. Though your sins are like scarlet they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become wool. <laughs> In other words, I love what the Father says. I'm not going to leave you where you are. I'm not going to leave you where you are. Though your sins may be scarlet, and that, that word scarlet is a, a word that they use for a red dye that basically... Once you dyed a shirt or, or a piece of clothing with this scarlet, with this dye, there was no turning back. 
The stain was so deep that it could not be removed. And God is looking at His children and He sees His children are stained so deep that in normal circumstances, it can't be removed. But He says, come on, let's reason together. Here's what I'm offering you. Before the verdict is given, before the verdict is given, before the sentence is given in the courtroom, He says, come on, let's, let's sit down and reason together. Here's what I'm willing to do. Even though your sins are so stained that it looks like there's no reversing it, I'll make them white as snow. That's what I'll do for you. I will, even though it's like crimson, I'm going to make them like wool, like white wool. In other words, there is no stain of sin that His children, His Christians will have that He will not and He he does not have the ability to cleanse it and make it white as snow no matter how dark, no matter how stained it is. And then in verse 19, He gives the terms to His children. Here's the terms. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. If you are willing, guys, willing to what? Listen to what he says. To quit rebelling to quit coming back to the beating that you keep taking? If you are willing. How many of you know that a lot of the things that we go through in this life are because of the sin in our life? Not everything. I'm not saying that. Y'all know that. But how many times do we look at every situation, bad situation in our life, and we never consider that maybe this is the discipline of God? Never! Don't you think we would be wise to at least consider is this the discipline of God in my life? Now, it's not for Job's friends to tell Job whether or not that was the discipline of God, right? But wouldn't Job be wise to stop and ask himself the question, is this the discipline of God in my life? Is some of the things that keep happening in my life, are, are, is some of it the reason because I keep rebelling against Him and I, he's, my, he's my father and I'm His child and my father, any good father or mother that loves their child, are you just going to sit back and let them watch themselves destroy themselves over and over again? Are you not trying to do everything in your power to stop it? As teenagers, are you not whipping their tail trying to figure out some way to get them to see and turn around? You're doing everything you can do how much more do you think God is? Right? So, He invites them. Come on, let's reason together. Listen, before I give you the verdict, here's what I'm offering to do for you. I will take your darkest stains and I will make them white as snow. But my children have to be willing. They have to turn this thing around. They have to come back to me. And then He goes on. <clears throat> And we move into the regression. We'll go through these real quick. Verse uh, 21 through 23. He, um, he continues to reason with them here. Remember, he says, come on, let's reason together, right? He's trying to convince them that what he's saying is true. And he says here in verse 21, you were a faithful city, but now you've become a whore. In other words, you were true to me. You were a faithful city to me, but now you have many lovers. Now there are many things that you worship and there are many things that you serve. You were full of justice, 
Righteousness did lodge in you, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross. You know what he's saying there? What was silver back then? Something valuable, right? He's saying you used to have something valuable. Do you remember when you first got saved? Anybody with me? You remember whenever you first got saved and you spent time with Him in prayer? You wanted to come to church to hear what He said in His Word? I see it all the time. People that come to the Lord and they get right with the Lord, man, they hear Sunday school, Sunday morning, Wednesday night. Um, a lot of them, if they can find a small group to be a part of, they're a part of it. I mean, they are, they're all in. I want to have a relationship with my Father. And you used to have something valuable. But now your silver has become dross. You know what dross is? It's that sludge of, of, of impurities that rise to the top when you're a molting metal. And it's that stuff that's worthless and they scrape off the top and they throw it off to the side. You used to have something valuable when you were my child, when you were young, when, you were, when, 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 when we were in love. And now your silver, what used to be valuable, has become dross. How many of you have traded your Bible for Facebook? Oh man. Oh, preacher, you got me. I don't know if I'll ever recover from that one. I mean, seriously. You know, I'm not trying to say that Facebook is wrong. I'm not trying to say that, that you can't be a Christian and, and do things like that. But how many of you know that the first thing you reach for in the morning usually ain't your Bible? Chrissy sounded like a shelf throwing a little seasoning on it. Bam! Let's add a little bit of that to it. But I mean, seriously. Seriously, you've traded your Wednesday night study for the couch. Right? You've traded... I mean, you used to have silver, but now it's dross. You used to have something valuable when you were faithful, but now... You've traded it all for stuff that's worthless. And then he goes on. He says next in verse 22, Your best wine you mixed with water. Your princes are rebels. Your companions are thieves. Everyone loves a bribe, runs after 